This is They Create Worlds, episode 66, Half of a Life. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well then, Mr. Freeman, we have something for you to consider. A long legacy full of sequel, prequel, unquill, and spin-off. All dealing with an engine or something. Yes, and let us take this opportunity to confirm that Half-Life 3 is definitely coming. At some point in the distant future. It's never coming. When we're old and decrepit and we're in our death bows in bed going. Never coming. You know, when I was young, I wanted to play that Half-Life 3 thing. And I didn't get it out until 2275. And I'm just sitting here trying to play it. And I don't know how to install this on Windows 56. Never coming. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) But at least we have two plus games to look at. That's true. And not just any games, but some of the most influential games in the entire history of the industry. At the time that Half-Life was under development and came out, you had first-person shooters that were high-octane action Blow through hordes of enemies, faster, faster, kill, kill. Doom guy. And you had story-based games where you had more interesting and intricate environments and you took your time and you learned about the characters around you and you went deeper and deeper into a story. These genres did not, by and large, intersect I'm sure there's some specific obscure examples that went a little more narrative or whatever, but by and large, these two concepts did not in mainstream gaming intersect. And it did it with a visual presentation and a physics presentation that was unrivaled by most of the industry. We are finally to the point where Half-Life 2 doesn't look quite as impressive based on modern games. But it took us a lot of years from that 2004 release before we got to a point where we were like, you know, that doesn't really look all that special anymore. And then those speedrunners take it and just break the game to high heaven. Well, they do that with everything. So we thought that today we would take a close look at the creation of these two games the manners in which they were created, the trials and tribulations that the team faced, and how they blazed a new trail, really, for narrative in action video games. It's fair to say that this is certainly the franchise that really popularized having a first-person shooter be the engine, the vehicle that allowed for a narrative structure to actually take place. Even though you're running around shooting 16 billion things to doom, you still have an overall story going on. Yeah, it at times it can really feel like you're almost on a rail shooter, 
But at other times, you take your time, go, hmm, I wonder what I'm supposed to do here. Sure. And like I said, I mean, some projects had already gone a little bit in that direction before. I think certainly most notably System Shock all the way back in 1993 kind of laid some similar groundwork. But System Shock was not a success. System Shock is hugely influential because of what went on later with games like Thief and Deus Ex and whatnot that all kind of call back to that. But it was not a success. The thing that's important about Half-Life is not only did it do some of this innovation that was very uncommon at the time, but it did it while selling millions and millions of copies. It really just altered the face of the video game industry as a whole and kind of pivoted it in a whole new direction. Even though a game like Deus Ex did not take inspiration really from Half-Life, it took inspiration from System Shock and all of that. A game like Deus Ex probably would not have been nearly so well received, or a game like Bioshock would not have been nearly so well received if you didn't have this groundwork being laid by Half-Life kind of priming the audience for that new kind of game. It doesn't have deep themes or anything like a Bioshock does, but just telling a story while you're holding a gun or a crowbar in your hand is just not something that was done on the whole prior to 1998. Makes sense. It's the one that popularized it. So Valve, before they became the Steam Company, (laughs) started off with Half-Life 1. That's right. So the entire genesis of this whole thing really goes back to an individual named Mike Harrington. Mike Harrington was a developer at Microsoft. He had worked on several of the company's projects after joining the company in about 1987, most notably doing a lot of work as a developer on Windows NT. Before he had joined Microsoft, he had spent a couple of years as a programmer at Dynamics, the game company, programming on a couple of their sports titles. So he was a guy that liked games, a guy that had been involved in games on a very low level, and then went to Microsoft Worked on the real big serious software, got the real big serious Microsoft stock options, and became one of the Microsoft millionaires. He was pretty much done with Microsoft by 1996. I mean, he kind of felt he'd done all he could there. His stock options were vested. He was wealthy. It was time for him to move on. He decided that what he really wanted to do was create a game company. He wanted to get into games and create a first-person shooter, kind of like these things like Doom and Quake that had become so popular in the last few years. He didn't want to do it alone, though, so he went and talked to one of his friends at the company at Microsoft to join him in co-founding the company, and that individual is Mr. Gabe Newell. Now, today, because Mike left the company fairly early, we'll talk about that in a little bit, Today, obviously, Gabe Newell is the Valve guy. When people think of Valve, they think of Gabe. He was certainly the co-founder of the company. He was president of the company. He was the public face of the company. So his importance to the company cannot be overstated. But it's interesting that as far as I can tell from the sources, it really was Mike's idea to actually do all of this. And because he left, he's been a little bit forgotten. So it's, it's good to remember that this was a company co-founded by two individuals, Mike Harrington and Gabe Newell. Gabe Newell was another Microsoft millionaire. He came to the company much earlier. 
a very smart guy, very good programmer. He was attending Harvard in 1983 when he came back to Seattle to visit his brother, who had just started working at this Seattle-area software company that was starting to become kind of a big deal called Microsoft. This was a period of time, I mean, I think Microsoft is probably still largely this way, but especially in its early days, this was a company where you worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. These people that became Microsoft millionaires, they earned it with their blood, sweat, and tears. Bill Gates was a hard worker, and he expected everyone around him to be a hard worker. So even though Gabe's back from college to visit his brother, his brother doesn't have time to do much with him in Seattle because he's just working at Microsoft constantly. So what ends up happening is Gabe ends up visiting with his brother at Microsoft. He ends up going in and talking to him while he's there. And Steve Ballmer sees him one day and is like, you know, you've been hanging around here so much. If you're going to hang around all the time and distract my workers, you better do something useful. So they put Gabe to work and Gabe uh, becomes a tester. The first uh, dedicated tester is my understanding that Microsoft ever hired. He becomes a tester on, it wasn't called Excel then, but on what became Excel, still multiplan. He ends up joining the company. He ends up following in the footsteps of Bill Gates by dropping out of Harvard in order to join Microsoft. Well, to be fair, if Microsoft is they're going, well, you're standing around here anyway, and you're not going to be escorted off by security. <laughs> Why don't we hire you? Sure. Newell has said in interviews that he learned more in three months at Microsoft than he learned in three years at Harvard. It was a far more practical experience, especially since, as we've talked about in previous episodes, even today, academia and computer science, as we have talked about, can often be far removed from the practical reality of doing computer programming work or IT work or network administration work out in the real world. But that was even more true back in the early 1980s when the entire academic world was still in the world of institutional computing, mainframes and mini computers and didn't really know what to do about these funny new microcomputers that were popping up all over the place. He definitely did not regret at all leaving Harvard to join Microsoft. This is kind of important, I think, to the way that Valve developed as well, because certainly one of the, I'm sure, many things that Gabe learned from this experience is it's not the education that's important. It's not the degree that's important. It's not even necessarily the experience that's important. If you have the intelligence, if you have the drive, and if you have the know-how, even if you have only used that know-how in a non-professional setting, then you are someone that has something to contribute to a company. We don't need to get hung up on this whole idea of education and degrees and this and that. So Gabe comes to Microsoft. He becomes a producer on the first few versions of Windows, Windows 1 and Windows 2. He's a producer on those products. He leaves Windows before the, the breakthrough 3.0 product, but he continues in Microsoft in other projects after that. He, too, is a Microsoft millionaire. So he, too, is definitely at the point where if he wanted to leave Microsoft, he certainly could. So when Mike Harrington came to him with this idea of founding this company together, he was very receptive to it. 
that was the beginning of Valve. 1996 is when they left Microsoft to strike out on their own. They were in a very unique position compared to the vast majority of game developers. And this is also going to be an important part of the Half-Life story. These two men are fabulously wealthy. I don't know what their net worth was. I mean, they weren't billionaires. They weren't Bill Gates' level of wealthy. But these were very, very, very wealthy individuals. Two Microsoft millionaires pooling their resources. They didn't have to get venture funding and let a bunch of venture capitalists join their board and take a big share of their company and have a say in the decision making. They didn't need funding from a publisher to work on the projects they wanted to work on. They would still need a publisher to publish, but they didn't need a publisher who was sending them money for milestones and kept development funded. They were beholden to no one. They needed no one from a financial perspective. And this gave them the great freedom to do what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was create a first-person shooter, this genre that had been taking over. They had an in with id Software. There's a guy named Michael Abrash, probably pronounced Abrash, I don't know exactly, A-B-R-A-S-H. Michael Abrash had been the 3D graphics guru at Microsoft for a very long time. He's one of these guys that was very influential, one of these guys that had Bill's ear. And then he left for a time to actually join id Software during the development of Quake. Harrington Newell knew Abrash from Microsoft, and now he's at id. He left in 96. He left at the same time that this was all going on. Through Abrash, they were able to set up a meeting with id and license the Quake engine. I think at this point they were licensing the Quake 2 engine because 1996 Quake is released and then Quake 2 is in development. So they licensed the Quake 2 engine from id. We talked before in our Doom episode how id was really an important progenitor in the idea of middleware. They didn't create their Wolfenstein, Doom, and Quake engines to be middleware. They developed them to fuel their own games. But because they had such a great engine designer in John Carmack, and because they separated engine development and game development in a way that a lot of early companies didn't, just because they had this engine expert in charge of a big chunk of the company, they had a completed engine that they could let other people use. So there were a few other companies that they were kind of close to that they allowed to use that engine to make their own stuff. And it was kind of the real beginning of the middleware movement, even though it was kind of ad hoc and by accident. They weren't just letting any old person use it because they weren't a true middleware company. They weren't like Epic a few years later, as we talked about in our episode, licensing the Unreal Engine to everybody. They weren't just putting it out there for anybody. You had to impress them that you would do something good with it. You know, they weren't just handing it out to anyone who asked for it. Harrington and Newell, being brand new to the industry, a couple of years at Dynamics in Harrington's case, 10 years before, not really counting in any way, shape or form, had no track record in the industry. They had no demos to show. They had no prior work to show. 
they probably would not have been able to, under normal circumstances, get a license to that Quake 2 engine. But because they had the Abrash connection, Abrash, who was thought of very highly by John Carmack, could vouch for them and say, no, these are good guys. They're going to do something good with this. It's okay. Let them have a license. And I don't know if that was definitive in them getting a license, but some of the sources seem to indicate that (laughs) it certainly didn't hurt. So with that Abrash connection, they licensed the Quake 2 engine because they don't want to start from scratch. They do have plans to extend the engine. They're not just going to use it as is, but they don't want to reinvent the wheel there because from the beginning, they have this idea that they want it to have a little bit better physics than games that have become before it and a little bit better story than games that came before it. And they figured that if they had to start from scratch with a brand new engine, they would be spending all of their time just getting their work to the same level of id. They wouldn't have time to move beyond what companies like id are already doing and innovate in some of these areas that they really wanted to innovate. The other important thing that the id software connection gave them and the Abrash connection gave them is that Quake had a really budding mod community developing. We talked, I think, in the context of id and Doom about the mod communities that sprang up around id games very briefly. We didn't focus on it, but I think we talked about it. We did talk about it. We mentioned it a bit and the whole wad file thing and the whole deathmatch community stuff. Still, you can do Doom-related things out there if you have the original game. There are people who have updated the engine to work on modern systems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There was a lot of this going on in Doom, but it really took off in Quake. Because with Doom, they were like, well, it would be kind of fun if we put the WAD files out there in such a way that people could extract them and access stuff and do this and that. But they didn't really have an inkling when they did Doom how big a thing modding was going to be. So when Quake came along, they made a conscious effort to make it even more mod friendly. So there were a lot of enthusiasts around the country and probably even around the world that were starting to use Quake and and use Doom before it to do all sorts of interesting mod work and making whole new levels, whole new scenarios, total conversions, a very famous uh, alien total conversion for Doom, for instance. Id knew who these guys were. Id was keeping track of some of the most promising of these modders that were out there. And so through Id, Harrington and Newell got a list. I don't know if it was as formal as a formal list, but we'll call it a list for our purposes, got a list of some of the best modders out in the world. As I said, Gabe Newell was somebody who didn't finish college. He thought that an enthusiast that was very knowledgeable is going to be just as good, if not better, employee than somebody who has the degrees and the years of experience and this and that and the other thing. So they largely staffed the team with modders, people that were doing completely other things that had nothing to do with the games industry. Two of the first that they contacted were a couple of college students down in Florida that were delivering pizzas while they worked through school named uh, James Guthrie and Steve Bond. They left a message on their phone because they had the contact information, you know, through id, just a cryptic message saying, hey, we'd like to work with you. We're, if you come up to Seattle, we'll get a ticket for you and a hotel and everything. Call us back. Okay, bye. 
you know, not really identifying who they were. Bob and Guthrie thought it was a joke at first, but they did return the call. They almost didn't. And sure enough, they furnished the ticket. And I mean, they're rich. They can do this. They furnished the ticket and the hotel and the car and, and everything. And Bond's the one that came up first and kind of pitched him on the whole thing. He joined. Guthrie joined later, dropped out of school to be a part of it. Again, if you've got the job, if you've got the work, you don't need the education because the education is there to give you the background you need to get the work. So they were some of the very first ones. There was another guy named Ken Birdwell that became one of the most important, if not the most important animators on Half-Life and Half-Life 2. He was already a professional guy, but his job, he was doing 3D scans of feet to make insoles for shoes. Riveting. (laughs) You know, he had nothing to do with the games industry. I mean, he was an enthusiast and all that, but he was not working in the industry. And so that's another guy they sucked in. That's how they got a lot of their talent. They did round out the team with some people that had been at companies like Shiny and 3D Realms. Companies that were already in the industry. It wasn't all modders and neophytes. But a lot of the really key positions were drawn from this budding modding community that was starting to appear around its games. People that were already kind of familiar with the the Quake engine to a degree, not necessarily the Quake 2 engine, but the Quake engine, and who could get up to speed on that relatively quickly and start coming up with good ideas. Valve actually had two games in development at the very beginning of the process. They thought they were going to do two different things. Well, before we get into their games, how did they come up with the name Valve? There's not a lot of history on that. They didn't want something that was all like epic mega games. They didn't want something that sounded big and violent or extreme or something like that. They wanted something kind of understated. Hollow Box was a name that they were considering for a very long time, and they finally chose Valve. I mean, I think it was just on a list of names, and they just liked the way it sounded. I don't think there's a big, great story about how the Valve is a a metaphor for something or another. But yeah, it was a conscious decision to use a low-key name rather than kind of the hyped-up, pumped-up, epic mega games kind of name that a lot of companies were doing at the time. So at the beginning, as I said, they had two games that they thought they were going to be doing. The first-person shooter was kind of the reason that they started this thing. So, I mean, that was kind of the first product that they wanted to get done, the primary product that they were going to work on. For this game, because they wanted to have something with more story, with more atmosphere in it than the the typical first-person shooter at the time, the main inspiration uh, for Harrington and Newell at the very beginning was the Stephen King story, The Mist. Are you familiar with The Mist? I may have seen it a long time ago, but my memory of it, I remember The Fog. Yes. that. But I don't remember how The Mist goes. Yeah. So in The Mist, you have a military facility, a military base called Arrowhead, where something happens and this fog starts spilling out of the base and covering a nearby town. Then after the fog has kind of encircled this town, then the monsters start coming out of the fog. It focuses on a group of survivors that are trapped in a grocery store trying to survive this whole scenario. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. 
this was kind of the main influence that they had. So you can already see, okay, military base, something goes wrong and something mysterious starts pouring out. You can see that sounds familiar. Yeah, that's (laughs) definitely the start there of Half-Life 1. Exactly. So they codenamed the game that they were working on Quiver because they are very smart and clever people. So it was a double reference. It was a reference to the mist because the arrowhead base and arrows quivers. Mm-hmm. And then it was also a reference to quake, this great big earthquake. And then you had just this little quiver that is our little game that's in the shadow of quake. And on the same engine. That's right. So you had this kind of dual meaning for it and they were being cute. So Quiver was the primary project, and it was going to be a first-person shooter. Yes, it was going to have more atmosphere. Yes, it was going to have more story, but it was still going to be closer to something like Quake than something like Final Fantasy VII. Then they wanted to do something that was a little more story-based and something that was based more on mist in terms of, I presume, there's not a lot of information on this one, so I am making some assumptions here. But I presume, based on Mist in the sense that you have grander, more expansive environments to explore and more story and plot and exploration based with some combat as well, but taking this, this other stuff into account. And that game was codenamed Prospero. As time goes on and Half-Life needs more and more people, Prospero is completely backburnered until it's finally just totally canceled. The importance of Prospero is that as more team members from Prospero were added into Half-Life, into Quiver, there was more and more emphasis starting to be placed on story and world building and experience as these two projects, in a way, almost merged. I mean, I don't really think anything from Prospero was used in Half-Life, but just the design philosophy, the ideas that kind of thing started getting merged in even more. Even though Half-Life was always going to be kind of more story-based, it was only slowly over time that some of the more intricate pieces started infiltrating, in part because of this Prospero team becoming more and more involved with Quiver, with Half-Life. So what did they want to accomplish? The main technological thing that they wanted to accomplish that hadn't been done yet was they wanted to have a complete skeletal animation system. Well, at this point, polygonal enemies in general are a brand new thing. We talked before, a game like Doom, that was kind of sort of a 3D game, or even a game like uh, LucasArts Dark Forces, which actually had real, full 3D environments, still for characters and for enemies tended to use sprites. It's what some people have called 2.5D. That's Not 2.5D in the technical sense, but 2.5D in the sense that you've got 3D environments, but you're still using 2D elements and you're still using sprite-based enemies and items. Essentially, think of you have a 3D environment and you have a bunch of paper cutouts of enemies and you running around, and we just happen to have it so that whenever the camera is looking at you, the 2D paper cutout is always facing you. Exactly. Quake had fully 3D environments and enemies. This was the first time it had been done. It was not the very first time it had been done, but it was the first prominent first-person shooter that moved away from sprite-based 
characters and items in a 3D world to fully 3D polygonal characters. But at this point, your animation is pretty limited because you're just basically doing animation frames where you put your models in a bunch of different poses and then animate between those poses. It's not very fluid animation. At this point, it's still very jerky animation. The Valve people wanted to have much more fluid animation in their characters. The way that you had to do that was at that time was essentially to make a skeletal animation system, which basically means that you literally created the entire skeleton of the individual, all the articulation points. I mean, you probably didn't do all 200 and some odd bones in a human body. You didn't go to that level of articulation. But any points that you wanted to articulate, you actually created a full skeletal system and programmed it so that the articulation was being done at the joints as it would be in a real skeleton. And then you put uh, your skin over top of that, your polygonal stuff over top of that, your surfaces, and then you have kind of a more realistic movement system. This is common today. I mean, they even go beyond that today. But that was not as easy as it sounded back in 1996. This is not something that was really done. This is something that was going to be a big challenge, but it was something that they felt very keenly that they needed to do. The other thing that they really wanted to accomplish is that they wanted enemies that actually behaved in somewhat realistic ways. In other first-person shooters at the time, you would have different enemies that have different abilities, different methods of attack, what have you, but they were all just kind of independent actors following the very simple set of AI routines that their specific type of enemy was made for. They went along the lines of everyone's great and famous general, Zap Brannigan, going, I want a whole bunch of you chappies to go after that guy over there, and it takes as many of those deaths as we can take. (laughs) That's right. They wanted to do AI that was more realistic and more team-based. So if you had dog-like creatures, like those hound things in Half-Life, they wanted them to act as a pack, where you kind of had the pack leader And then you had the other members of the pack using pack tactics. If you had special forces, government special forces coming in, they wanted them to kind of use squad based tactics and take cover and dodge from grenades and and do all of this kind of thing that really didn't happen at that time. They wanted AI that was somewhat believable. These were, in addition to having a little more grounding in story, these are kind of the two technical hurdles that they wanted to overcome. Really, they needed to come up with some sort of AI scripting language in order to give them the flexibility they needed in order to tell whatever it is, how to do what they're going to do, and then easily call upon it in order to refine and go into whatever they're doing. So you have the dogs running around going, yes, we're in a pack and going after you, but they always check to see at the start of their routine, is the leader still there? Yes. Okay, fine. We're still attacking. The leader's not there? How long had the leader been dead? Oh, God, I must sit here and be completely terrified for three seconds since the leader is dead (laughs) until we decide who the new leader is. (laughs) Right. This is the kind of technical problem that they wanted to solve and what people like Guthrie and Bond and Birdwell and all of these modders and others that they had pulled in were really working on. Mike Harrington was the primary coder. Harrington really pushed a lot of the code on the game. 
Gabe Newell's job was more on the vision side of things, on trying to connect the dots between things. He was not a designer per se, but that was kind of looking at the overall project was was kind of his big thing, I think. Harrington was the one really pushing the code. And then they had their animators and their artists and their level designers and all of these people that they had hired from around, as we talked about. As this game is getting underway, they need a publisher. Like I said, they don't need a publisher to fund them. This is the period of time before Steam, obviously, since Valve hasn't invented it yet, where if you're creating a computer game, you need someone to get it on a shelf for you or nobody's going to buy it. Yeah, it got Doom on shareware, but generally speaking, it's good to have a box on a shelf. So they go around to a lot of publishers and nobody is interested. They're not interested for very practical reasons. It's the same thing where uh, they got lucky that id would give them the time of day. These guys are new. Harrington and Newell have not created a game before. Harrington programmed on a couple of games 10 years ago. But neither of them have created a game before. Neither of them have managed a team creating a game before. Neither of them have a product that they can point to and say, I was primarily responsible for this. Most of their hires below them are people who have never been involved in the game industry in a professional way before. They have pizza delivery boys. They have a patent attorney. Their main, <laughs> their main engineer was an attorney. Their main uh, software engineer was an attorney down in Atlanta <laughs> before he took the job to be the, <laughs> the main, I think, systems engineer. I can't remember his exact title, but before he took this job, they have the guy that was scanning feet for insoles. I mean, <laughs> this is the group of people that are going to make this game, and they're not just going to make any game. They're going to make a game with one of the first, if not the first, true skeletal animation systems ever found in a major release and with the most sophisticated AI that's ever been seen in a first-person shooter. Sure you are, guys. Sure you're going to do that. We'll believe it when it gets published. <laughs> that's right. You know, come back to us with a less ambitious idea or when you have a few more titles under your belt, <laughs> you know? And who can blame them? I mean, this is a period of time when everyone is trying to ride that Doom wave, is trying to ride that Quake wave, is trying to ride that first-person shooter wave. There's lots of guys that say, sure, we're going to do this. We're going to license the engine and we're going to create this awesome thing. And it's like, there's nothing really to separate Valve from any of those others at this point. You know, from the perspective of a publisher, who can blame them for not really taking a chance? But there is one guy that was willing to take a chance on this. And that individual was Ken Williams of Sierra Online. We talked about this side of things very briefly in our uh, Sierra episodes because we did cover Sierra. This was uh, right after or right around and right after the time that they had just been bought out. This is very close to the period of time when Ken Williams is about to leave the company in disgust because all of the protections and promises of authority that he was given during the purchase of the company never materialized. Lies. <laughs> so literally one of his very last acts at Sierra was to meet with the guys from Valve and listen to their pitch. The thing about Ken Williams that set him apart from some of these other companies is he was still smarting very badly over the fact 
that if he had just come to terms on another couple of hundred thousand dollars, he could have owned id. We talked about that in the id episode. Mm-hmm. He could have owned id software. He could have had those first person shooters in his stable. They came to him. They bowed before him going, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. You could have us for this mere money. Because it was a couple hundred thousand dollars more than he wanted to pay and they wouldn't budge, he turned it down. He saw the potential, but he didn't want to spend quite that money. And so he is still smarting from this. And he knows that Sierra needs a first-person shooter project. Desperately. He's been looking for one. He's been kicking the tires on some of these people going around saying, yeah, sure, I can make a game like Quake or better than Quake. The one thing that impressed him, and this comes from an interview he gave in an article that was kind of a postmortem on on the creation of Half-Life. The thing that, according to Ken Williams, set Valve apart from these other companies in his mind is that they didn't just have artists and designers. They actually had software engineers. He was impressed by the fact that they weren't planning to just take the Quake 2 engine, slap a coat of paint on it, rearrange the furniture a little bit, and call it a brand new game. The fact that they had the ambition to want to extend the engine by doing the skeletal animation thing, by doing this AI stuff, and that they had software engineers on staff that were going to do this stuff made him think, okay, these guys are green, they haven't done this before, but they're clearly ambitious and they've clearly put together a group of people that is covering a lot more disciplines than a lot of the Me Too first-person shooter projects I'm seeing out there in the world. So he agrees to be the publisher on the game. They sign the contracts. Like I said, it's one of the very last acts that Ken Williams does before he leaves the company. They now have a game project that is going to be released in uh, November of 1997. That's the target release date. I think it's about a year out, a little over a year out when they sign the contract. Very reasonable for the time period. So they have a publisher. They have staff. They have an engine. They're extending the engine. They have Quiver. Mm -hmm. They're getting to work. There's not so much that's been said about the fine day-to-day necessarily. So there's, there's not much to say about most of this period of time. One of the big things is that at first, when they were first conceptualizing it, it was going to be like every other first-person shooter. The only characters that are in that game world are you and the people trying to kill you. But at some point, the people working on the AI are starting to kind of test their AI routines. So they've created this security guard character, affectionately named Barney, after Barney Fife, Don Knotts' character on The Andy Griffith Show. Barney is meant to be a low-level enemy, these kind of Black Mesa, it's probably not called Black Mesa yet, but we'll call it that, these Black Mesa security guards are meant to be kind of a very low-level, fairly low-intelligent, for a human actor, enemy. In order to test the AI, what they're doing is having Barney follow around the protagonist. I'm not sure if he's Gordon Freeman at this point or not, but following around the player character just to test the AI routines to make sure that he's following around properly and taking positions properly and everything. They realize while they're doing these AI experiments, like, well, you know what? Actually, this is kind of cool. 
he actually does follow the character pretty well and fights with the character pretty well. It's like, well, we should have some NPCs that are either benign characters or even in addition to being benign characters, even be characters that are are aiding you at points during the game. It comes about completely by accident because they're testing out this low-level AI. That's kind of the biggest thing that comes out of this period in terms of refocusing. The other thing that they do discover, a kind of uh, unexpected or at least unlooked for benefit of doing a skeletal animation system is that when characters are talking, particularly these new uh, non-player characters or companion characters are talking, because we're doing a full skeletal animation system, we can create the bones in the jaw and in the mouth and actually have their mouths move while they're talking. You don't have the bobbing head effect. Right. And it seems so simple today, but this was revolutionary. We're not to the point yet, this was not the kind of sophistication that would come a few years later where the mouths are actually perfectly synced to the sounds coming out of the mouth of the character. It's just jaws flapping while they're saying what they're saying and and starting at the time that they're starting to speak and stopping when they finish speaking. This, again, I mean, I haven't researched this period in super minute detail to know if somebody did that before them. It's very possible somebody did that before them. But this is something that mainstream games did not do back then. You did not have mouths moving in time to dialogue. So all of this is starting to come together. They've got their animation system is working. Their AI is getting pretty good. They've been conceptualizing all of these crazy creatures. I'm not sure where the plot is at this stage. Uh, You know, I told you that the mist uh, was a big influence on them. They also at some point took inspiration from an episode of The Outer Limits in which the characters in it had managed to shift into another universe, another dimension. You know, obviously that (laughs) plays very much into what goes on at the Black Mesa facility as well. So they've kind of got that element of there's something wrong at a military base where strange stuff is happening. And then they've added on this outer limits concept of and it happened because scientists figured out how to breach into another dimension. And so you've got these things coming out from another dimension. You've got this idea now that you can have companion characters as well as enemies in the game. All of this is coming together. They do a demonstration at E3 in 1997. It's met with rave reviews. Uh, I believe they're named Best in Show at E3 in 1997. Everything is going along great, except for one problem. The game's not very fun. What? We have to have a fun game after all of this technology? The technology should just be, if we build it, they will come. The goal had been to create something far more special, far different, far more interesting than the games like Doom and Quake that already existed. It turns out that they're really not doing that. There are moments of brilliance in the game. There's some cool technology in the game. But most of the gameplay ends up being very similar, essentially, to Doom. Enter room, swarmed by mobs, kill mobs, enter next room, wash, rinse, repeat. It's not very exciting. The story is not really coming together. The levels don't really match up together. And the real problem here is that they don't have a real designer. There's not a person. I told you how Gabe Newell's kind of keeping track of this and that, but 
at the end of the day, they don't have a person whose job is to be, this is the game, these are the parts of the game, these are how the parts of the game fit together and create a harmonious whole to create awesome. They don't have that. They had looked for some designers, they had hunted for some designers, but they were unable to find anyone that met all the requirements that they felt were needed for somebody that was leading the design on a game like this. A game that I might add is very complicated compared to other first-person shooters at the time because not only do you have the more sophisticated AI, not only do you have the non-player characters, but they also are crafting this game to be a continuous romp through this Black Mesa facility. A game like Doom or Quake You have discrete levels. You finish level, you move on to next level. Finish that level, you move on to the next level. They're discrete little built pockets of stuff. In that case, it doesn't matter if there isn't so much consistency amongst level design. I mean, you want all the levels to be interesting. You want all the levels to follow certain rules. But like in Doom, you can often tell which levels John Romero designed and which levels Sandy Peterson designed in like Doom 2, because they have very different design sensibilities. And that's fine, because they're discrete levels. Each level is its own self-contained experience. Another ambitious thing that the Valve people are doing is creating one seamless world. Now, it's not like a Metroid, where you're moving forward and then backtracking, moving forward and then backtracking. You're still moving forward constantly, pretty much, in Half-Life. But you could go practically back to the beginning if you wanted to. There's nothing to do there, but you can. It's one seamless world. There's no loading screens in between. You're just moving through this facility. So when you have one level designer designing this part of Black Mason, one level designer designing this part of Black Mason, and these guys doing this other part, if it doesn't all fit together, if it doesn't make sense, if you have vastly conflicting styles, then that's a problem. You start out in the desert, going into Black Mesa. It looks like a government facility. You take a left-hand turn. You're in a cave system. You find a skylight. You climb out of that, and it's snowing outside. (laughs) Right, and obviously that's an extreme example. (laughs) They weren't doing anything quite that crazy. But it, it didn't fit together well. And because it didn't fit together well, and because you had all of these different people doing cool things but nobody serving as gatekeeper to let everyone know what the cool things are and how best to use the cool things, it wasn't coming together. So it just wasn't fun. I mean, the demo wowed people at E3 because they were showing off some interesting graphics and some good animation and good AI. I mean, you can control the demo. The game itself just wasn't that fun. At this point, it's summer 1997, just a little bit past E3. Your game is coming out in November 1997. You have two options here. You hastily regroup, figure out what's working and what isn't, and nudge it, patch up what you can. There's only so much you can do in that amount of time. But you at least identify a couple of core things that you're doing well and apply it to the rest of the game. You'll have a game that's probably a little more fun than what you have right now, but will still be mediocre. Or you delay the game until you have time to get it right. 99.9, that may be an exaggeration, but I'll say it anyway, 99.9% 
of game developers at this point have no other choice. They just have to bite the bullet, do what they can to fix it, and hit their release date. There are so many games throughout history where they had lofty ideals, grand ambitions. And at the end of the day, the developer ran out of time and just had to ship it as was, and it didn't live up to what was promised. We're looking at you, Moo 3. <laughs> That's a big one. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 is another big one. <laughs> and the reason for that is economic. You don't have the money to fund development forever. Your publisher isn't going to fund development forever. Your publisher, especially at this point, is a publicly traded company. They have to hit their quarters. They can't wait. They have to release it now and get what they can. And they're the ones funding you. But Valve is owned by two Microsoft millionaires. They fund themselves. They do. So unlike the vast majority of developers, they had the ability to say, we are going to delay this game for as long as it takes to get it right. I don't know that Sierra was particularly happy about that, but they went along with it. And since they weren't controlling the purse strings, they didn't have that kind of leverage to hold over Valve. Their producer at Sierra, Scott Lynch, who later became the chief operating officer of Valve, he was invested in the project doing well. So I I don't want to make it sound like Sierra was necessarily dragged kicking and screaming into this delay. I think they had champions at Sierra, too. It's just no publisher likes to have a humongous delay. But they do it. They delay the game for as long as it takes to get right. And at this point, two very important things happen. The first thing that happens is right before this decision. This decision was made in August of 1997. Right before this decision was made in July 1997, they decide to hire a writer. Didn't have one to this point. They kind of had a story, but they didn't have anyone who was really good at storifying. They had a bunch of level designers and artists and animators and systems engineers, programmers. You need a storyteller, someone who can have an intro, a climax, a conclusion, something that can take the player from point A to point B to point C. So they bring in a guy in August 1997 named Mark Laidlaw. Laidlaw was an actual writer. I mean, they weren't just bringing in somebody who was like, oh, it might be fun to make a story someday. No, he was actually an author already in horror and science fiction. Some of his works had gotten some uh, pretty decent exposure and pretty decent reviews. I mean, he's not a super famous guy or anything, but he's a real science fiction and horror writer and a competent one at that, more than competent. He was also a gamer. He was really impressed by Myst and kind of the storytelling potential that games now had that they could immerse you into a whole different world. They bring on Mark Laidlaw. They bring him on in a, in a dual role as a game designer, but also as a writer. And so he gets the story into shape. There haven't been a lot of interviews with the main Valve people. I don't know, unlike some of the games we're talking about, I don't know when certain elements came in exactly. So I don't know how much of that final story and some of those characters are laid law as opposed to some of the other people. You would assume 
that the bold idea of starting the game with several minutes of just riding a train into a facility is the kind of thing that they came up with after they had a writer who was thinking about establishing the world and establishing the setting. I don't know if that's Laidlaw. I don't know if they didn't have that before he came. If we were to be betting people and put down probability, a writer would be the prime choice to have. Yes, we're going to start off with darkness. Then you sort of come to as you start looking around and you're on a train. You're heading somewhere. There's announcements going on overhead, sort of introducing you like, oh, I'm here on a train. Oh, I'm going to work. Oh, this is at some sort of facility, okay? Going to work at a facility. I wonder who I get to murder first. Oh, these are my friends. <laughs> There's Mr. Scientist Man over there. Hello, Mr. Scientist Man. How are you doing today? Oh, there seems to be something wrong going on. We have an explosion somewhere. Let's go put on our hazmat suit. Yes, yes, we're feeling very quite fine now. Oh, look, um, there's someone who seemed to have fallen down and become very red. <laughs> he might need some help. Let's uh, grab this piece of metal over here <laughs> and express our displeasure at the horrible thing that decided to eat the face of my little scientist friend over there who was so nice to give me coffee in the morning. <laughs> exactly. It's, it sends the message right away that this is not going to be doom or quake. You know, John Carmack famously said, I'm paraphrasing because uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he famously said that a story in a first-person shooter is like the story in a porno. It's expected to be there, but it's not important. And that was the id philosophy. The id philosophy was we are going to pump you full of adrenaline. Zombies coming right now. Shoot them in the head. Zax is on fire. We'll shoot them in the head. <laughs> we'll press A. It's just onslaught. I mean, they give you moments of peace to regroup, but it's, it's just onslaught. Mm -hmm. That's the point of it. Pure adrenaline rush. They don't care about story. Yeah, you know, you're this Marine. You're assigned to Mars, to the moon of Mars, technically. And they open a gate to hell, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, whatever. It's there. But they're not spending time on that. They don't care. Demon coming right for you. Press That's A. <laughs> you know, the other thing, the characters. I don't know how much of the characters were established when Laidlaw came in and, and how much he did. I do know that Mark Laidlaw did name Gordon Freeman, or rather he did it in uh, combination with Gabe Newell. He knew that our protagonist was a scientist, kind of an everyman. He's not this hulked out space marine. You know, he's, he's just a normal guy, probably kind of smart if he's a scientist, but generally speaking, a normal guy thrust into an extraordinary situation. And he's a scientist. So he wanted a name that evoked kind of a scientist. So he thought of Freeman Dyson, very famous scientist, the whole Dyson sphere thing. He thought of the mathematician Poincaré and came up with the name Dyson Poincaré. And Gabe Newell was kind of like, that's eh, kind of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> but he let him have the Freeman Dyson thing. He let him have Freeman. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then they, they changed him to Gordon Freeman. So it comes from Freeman Dyson, but kind of a roundabout way in a conversation between Mark Laidlaw and Gabe Newell. 
I don't know if this happened while Laidlaw was here or before he got there, but I told you how about at the beginning there were only enemies. Then after they were doing the AI experiments, they decided, well, this is kind of fun. Let's give him some buddies. Let's give him some friends. So then after they did that, they went a step further and was like, what if we had a character where you don't know whether he's a friend or an enemy? And that's how they came up with the concept for the G-Man. They wanted an ambiguous character. We've got enemy characters. We've got friendly characters. What if we had a character that we don't know? He's observing you from the shadows from above. You catch him out of the corner of your eye. Sometimes he might even talk to you, Mr. Freeman. (laughs) That's right. That's right, Mr. Freeman. You need to listen to this podcast to understand your future. (laughs) so i don't know if that was a laid law idea or not just because like i said there's not a lot of detail in individual contributions but that's another thing that developed so they have a story guy now they're really focusing the story they're sharpening the story the other important thing I, i mentioned there were two important things is that they created what they called the cabal i told you that they'd been trying to find a designer and they never could So they finally decided, you know, the reason that we can't find a designer is that this game requires too many different skill sets for one person. So what we need is a designer made of multiple people. And I don't mean some horrific flesh zombie where you fuse them all together. I mean a committee that is responsible for overseeing all aspects of the game. And they called that the Cabal. The Cabal was made up of six people, three engineers, one level designer, the principal animator, Ken Birdwell, and Mark Laidlaw, the writer. It was their job to define how the entire game would flow, how the entire game would be consistent. Kind of before the Cabal was officially formed, they kind of started by going back to basics and creating one small but very interesting prototype level. Not that they threw out all the work that they had done before. It's not like they just hit the delete key. But they went back to basics by just creating one very small prototype level, making it really good and really polished and really fun, and then analyzing what worked in that prototype level, what made it really quite special. Then they started meeting regularly, all-day meetings, And they started figuring out how to take all of that stuff that they found was fun and conceptualize it and turn it into kind of a massive design document, 200-page document that kind of detailed, this is all the stuff our engine can do. This is all the stuff we want to accomplish with our engine. This is all the stuff that we are going to implement in this game. They did this for five months, four days a week, six hours a day, five months, just reconceptualizing everything from the ground up, taking all of this good work that had already been done, shifting out the stuff that was really good, casting aside the stuff that wasn't so good, and coming up with a core design. Then once that process was done and the game was being built, they oversaw regular playtest sessions. So they just started kind of rebuilding the game piece by piece and then playtesting the heck out of everything they were building. What their goal was, was to make sure that you were never more than a few seconds away 
from incident. There was always going to be something around the next corner. If you wanted to stop and catch your breath for a second, you could. You could stop moving forward and gather yourself. But they wanted there to be constant incident. Constant but varied. It's not like a doom or a quake situation where you enter a room, mob swarm you. You enter the next room, mob swarm you. Obviously, there's some differences. There's switches. There's this. There's that. But it's, it's basically the same. But they want different experiences, but constantly coming. You have this small experience, then you move to this small experience, then to this one, and you're always engaged and always interested, and there's always something cool happening, and often something you haven't seen before. That kind of becomes the way they reimagine Black Mesa. So they do that process. They rebuild the game essentially from scratch. They still don't quite have all the time maybe they would like. Certainly the, uh, the final part of the game, when you go to the Zen world, is uh, a little rough around the edges compared to the stuff in the Black Mesa facility. A lot of people say, quite rightly, that you, you had a great game going here, and then you had to send us to Zen. And it's like, yeah, that happened. And that's basically because even though they had more time and they polished more, <laughs> you still want to eventually get your game out. So they didn't have as much time to polish the end game as they had to do the rest. But this cabal system saved the game because they took something that was mediocre but had some good ideas, pulled all the good ideas out of it, focused them, concentrated them, made an entire game out of only the good ideas, and then you had Half-Life. It finally releases in 1998. It sells millions and millions of copies. So that's good. (laughs) The question becomes... How do you follow that up? Exactly. You know, if there's not a lot of information on Half-Life, there's even less, I think, information that's really come out on Half-Life 2. We, we'll, we'll just kind of go over the Half-Life 2 part of this kind of briefly. Well, to start with, they obviously didn't use the Quake 2 engine. They decided to go, we're going to the source of our engines. Yes, that's right. They're to the point now where they feel like they've pushed boundaries as much as they can using someone else's technology and building on top of it. This time, they want to build their own technology from the ground up. So they create their own engine, which is the source. The main thing that they want to accomplish with a sequel is to up the interactions with non-player characters. Because that was a part of the game that players found very appealing. The characters were very simple in Half-Life, the NPCs, but it was kind of unprecedented in a first-person shooter, and people were very enamored with that. So they wanted to push that. And in order to push interaction with other characters, they really did feel like they had to improve those characters and improve the way that they express themselves. So Ken Birdwell, our animator, our lead animator that was primarily responsible for coming up with the skeleton system, figures out a way to take this to the next level. And he does it by applying the work of a scientist actually back in the 1970s by the name of Dr. Paul Ekman. Paul Ekman was a psychiatrist. And what Dr. Ekman was uh, particularly interested in was seeing if he could diagnose mental problems merely by examining facial expressions. In order to do that, he had to come up with a kind of catalog of facial expressions before he could start 
seeing if there were common facial expressions, you know, attached to each mental illness. So he came up with roughly 40 what he called facial action units, basic moves that you do with your face, like moving your eyebrows or flaring your nostrils, all of these kind of things. But he came up with this kind of pretty comprehensive list of things that your face does. And so what Birdwell did is he created a new facial animation system where he basically programmed it to do all of these facial actions that Dr. Ekman had come up with and therefore come up with a comprehensive visual language, essentially, of of things that the face does without uh, necessarily having to do, you know, complicated motion capture and and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, Half-Life 2, I mean, even five years or more after Half-Life 2 came out, those faces and those facial expressions. They're very realistic. Mm -hmm. They are easy to read, easy to understand, easy to relate to. You have guards who, if some other company was doing it, they may have an angry look to it. But because of the way that this is done, you have a determined look to them. You may have a dejected look to the beggar off in some place. You got guards that express themselves way better than pretty much anything else to that point. Exactly. I mean, it's it's mind blowing. And it's because of this work that Ken Birdwell did based on this work of the psychiatrist back in the 70s with these common facial features. They knew that they wanted to open it up and have it be in a more expansive world. At first, they were thinking of doing actually having Gordon Freeman traveling to multiple worlds, you know, jumping between different planets and whatnot. They decided that that was a bit much. They settled on kind of their aesthetic look because their art director was Bulgarian. He kind of suggested a kind of Eastern European aesthetic, which really made sense because it's kind of this dystopia, this the combine is is taken over and kind of drab Eastern European look is synonymous in the West with communism just because the Warsaw Pact, you know, for so many years uh, during the Cold War. So it kind of lends itself to what our idea of a repressive society kind of might look like. That rundown look. Exactly. And drab and, and all of that. So, you know, they kind of got their setting in that way. The other big thing that they wanted to do is they wanted to really implement physics in the game. Like to have all of the physics perfectly work. All the objects have their proper mass and their proper weight and their proper effects if you pick them up and manipulate them and throw them and all of that. This was something that was not very often done yet in video games just because it was so difficult. It was such a a hard thing to do. There had been a game called Trespasser (laughs) that had been done that had been an absolute failure in this regard. It was just wonky. I mean, it was like, you know, ragdoll physics kind of stuff. But Valve really wanted to take that as the next step. Okay, we've had this skeletal animation thing. Let's do facial animations. We have this AI that works really well. Now let's add physics on top of the AI. And so, of course, because they wanted to show off this physics stuff that they did. Grav gun. That's right. Because if you're going to have these realistic physics, you want to really make sure that you have a way to show those off. (laughs) <laughs> so if I take this saw blade here and do this grab gun there and bounce it off of this wall here, 
that head crab over there goes into that vat of acid there. Exactly. Fun stuff. You know, these are kind of the major ways forward. And they use the cabal system again to make it work, but it's a little different. They create many cabals. You know, they make like the story cabal and the level design cabal, these different cabals, and have them each formulate their part of the game. Gabe Newell kind of becomes the glue that holds it all together. He kind of steps back from the day-to-day of the project, but he's there to kind of oversee and make sure that all the stuff everyone is thinking of kind of makes sense together. Mike Harrington is gone very quickly. The game starts development in 1999. He leaves in 2000. Basically, the company became successful way faster than they ever thought it would. They chipped the hit game. They crunched like crazy to do it. Crunch time, crunch time, crunch time. And they were successful. Mike Harrington wasn't sure he wanted to go through that again. It's like, I did what I set out to do. I created a successful company. I created a successful game. I don't know that I want to go through all of that hard work and crunch to do the same thing again. I'm a millionaire. I don't really need this. I'm going to retire and enjoy myself. Exactly. So Mike Harrington leaves. Gabe Newell steps back. And these mini cabals kind of run the show. In order to make sure that the design happens efficiently, they actually do the art last. They build the levels first. And they're just kind of built out of these orange blocks with no art. And then once they're sure they have the level design down, then they bring in the artists. They don't have any artists on the cabals. They just have, you know, the story people and the level design people and whatnot. And then the artists come in and do everything last. And then, just like in, in the Cabal period in Half-Life, then they start playtesting the heck out of things. They just run through stuff constantly. That's part of what makes Half-Life and Half-Life 2 so polished. They just run through stuff constantly. One of the big changes that they made when doing that is they had had kind of the standard first-person shooter thing where they kind of give you a breadcrumb trail of items. You know, you pick up a little ammunition here, a little ammunition there. They realized during one playthrough, this one time, one of the guys that was running through, like, barely made it for whatever reason. He had very little ammo yet left, and it was just such a relief when he got to the next place that had some ammo. And so they changed it so instead of having a little here, a little there, they spread out the power-ups and the ammo more. But when you got to a place that had ammo, they gave you a lot of it, just as a, a way of kind of increasing the, in, the tension and giving you a bigger risk, but then a bigger reward at the end of it. So that's an example of something that they really refined through the playtesting process. The biggest controversy with Half-Life 2 is that Gabe Newell insisted to everyone in existence that the game would be shipping on September 30th, 2003. This was the absolute drop-dead ship date. Even a couple of weeks before that, he was telling everybody, that it was going to ship September 30th, 2003. It didn't. They were nowhere near ready. It was the same problem as the original. They had a lot of good stuff, but it just wasn't polished up. It didn't quite fit together yet. They needed more time. They were always going to get more time because, you know, the Microsoft millionaire thing. But for some reason, Gabe Newell was too embarrassed. This is how he said it afterwards. He was kind of too embarrassed to admit that there was going to be a delay until he had a new ship date, but they didn't know when it was going to be done. So instead of saying that we're going to delay it and we'll let you know when the ship date was, he just kept telling people the old ship date. 
really should have just taken a page out of Blizzard's book and gone with soon trademarked. Exactly. But he, he didn't do that. So that created a lot of consternation in the fan communities. <laughs> it led one particular individual in Germany to uh, take unusual steps. There was a super fan in Germany that was really interested in the whole development of the game, and he wanted to watch the development of the game unfold. And so he hacked into Valve's systems. For months, he just sat there watching. Then finally, Gabe Newell noticed that an email that he had sent someone had been leaked out on the internet. And he was like, I didn't send that out. He asked the other guy, did you forward this email to anybody? And he was like, no. Uh-oh. He'd been having some strangeness with his computer before that, where the hard drive would be working during periods of time where it didn't make sense for the hard drive to be working so hard. He'd run virus checkers. He'd done all of that. He'd just written it off as computer crazy. But it was actually our hacker friend all over the system. As soon as they realized they had a hacker, he went out and started disconnecting all of Valve from the internet until they could solve this, literally ripping wires out of walls. Oh, dear. When the hacker realized he'd been compromised, he leaked the source code, the entire source code of Half-Life 2. Then he leaked a playable build of Half-Life 2. I'm sure you probably remember this. This was Mm -hmm. a big deal. Basically, it was just a way to prove it's like, This game is nowhere near done. You know, they're saying it's going to be out September 2013. I think he leaks after that, but it's like they were saying they were close. They had shown a demo again in 2003 and, you know, one best of show and everything. But now it's all a lie. It's nowhere near done. And I have the game to prove it. But then he kind of feels guilty about it because he's a super fan. So he emails Gabe Newell and it's kind of like, I'm sorry. I just like you guys so much. And he proved it was him because he sent two files that had not been leaked on the internet that he had gotten off of Valve servers. So Gabe Newell took all of his resolve, wrote him a polite letter back, being like, I understand. It's okay. And then, you know, kept him going, you know, over an email exchange. It's like, you know, you're really good at this. You should come interview with us at Valve and help us with our security. (laughs) And the guy's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'll fly into Seattle and do that. Of course, Gabe Newell had no intention of hiring the guy that hacked their servers and leaked all of their proprietary stuff. He planned to have the FBI waiting at the airport in Seattle when the guy landed. The German government got wind of this and didn't like the idea at all of a German being lured to American soil just to be arrested. They ended up nixing that part of the operation and just were like, no, we're not doing this, but we'll go arrest him now. So the guy got caught because he communicated with Gabe Newell and was dumb enough, very smart with computers, but dumb enough to think that there would be no consequences, I guess, for his actions. Important note, kids. If you're going to hack someone, don't tell them. (laughs) That's right. You know, they had controversies, they had hard moments, but with the mini cabal system and with taking a step back and kind of tweaking things for months, they came up with a good game, a solid game, an excellent game. And they did finally release it in 2004. The final kind of controversy they had is that for a while it looked like 
their publisher, which at this point is Vivendi Games, because as we discussed in our Sierra episode, the whole Sierra bought by Sedant, bought by Havas, bought by Vivendi. Vivendi, the French conglomerate, is now the publisher because they own Sierra. They're upset because they've gotten wind that Valve is going to offer this game through some proprietary online thing called Steam. This is not a history of Valve, so we won't go too far into this, but Half-Life, of course, inspired a lot of mods. The two by far most significant mods that came out, one was actually in development before Half-Life came out, and that was something called Team Fortress where it was already in development, and then the Valve guys were impressed, so they actually hired the creators of Team Fortress into Valve to help finish Half-Life and to port Team Fortress and turn it into a Half-Life game instead, uh, a Half-Life-based game. The other was Counter-Strike, created by two college students that were interested in a more realistic game with one-shot kills and realistic weapons with realistic stats and all of that stuff. Counter-Strike became insanely popular. Yeah, I would argue to say it's still insanely popular. It is. But what Valve found was that it was very difficult to update the game. Because every time they had to do an update to fix bugs or exploits or whatever, they ended up having to take the game offline for several days while they did the patching for the game. It was a very difficult process to patch. They thought... It would be kind of cool if you could auto-update instead. Just push an update out to everybody. They also wanted to do something to help with piracy. So uh, they were like, if we're going to do this pushing out of an update thing, we might as well include some anti-piracy stuff in there too. And that was kind of the basis of Steam. And you know, they didn't even want to do it themselves. They had the idea... But they were not a publisher. They were not a retailer. They were not a distributor. They went to Microsoft. They went to Yahoo. They went to Real Networks. Probably went to a couple other places as well. Nobody wanted to take on this project. So Valve said, fine, we'll make it ourselves. Gabe Newell kind of, when he was taking a step back from Half-Life 2, he was kind of focusing on the whole Steam thing. And, of course, they decided that if we're pushing out updates and all of this and all of that, anti-piracy, we might as well sell stuff, too. They were going to put their own games on it. They made some deals with some very small publishers to put their games on it, too. Small publishers like all the exposure they can get. Why not? Vivendi was not happy, and they threatened to sit on the game, and they sued Valve, saying that Valve was deliberately dragging their feet on creating the game and completing the game so that they could put it out on their Steam platform and circumvent their publishing deal. In the end, everyone made nice, and Half-Life 2 got released on schedule. I mean, on schedule by the publisher once Valve was done with it in 2004. The seeds had been sown. Steam was now a thing, and of course Steam keeps growing, and is arguably a big part of the reason why we never did get Half-Life 2 Episode 3 or now a Half-Life 3. So for the moment, it seems like Half-Life 2 and its two episodic expansions may well be the last official Half-Life games to come out, at least for a very, very, very long time. Which is a shame because of how much ground both of those games broke, but Valve is a little busy breaking ground in other areas right now, like 
digital distribution. <laughs> and really killing it, arguably. Mm-hmm. There you have it. Uh, a little more of a briefer overview of some of the big things in, in Half-Life 2. Uh, again, mostly because the sources aren't really there at this point to do an in-depth look. But you can kind of at least see how Valve was a company of great ambition that had a kind of very defined way that they wanted to move games forward and then figured out how to create game systems, game engines, and organizational structures with the cabals that would allow them to carry out these ambitious goals. And because they were self-funded, because Newell and Harrington were so rich, they could take their time to figure stuff out. And as a result, you get two of the most influential first-person shooters of all time. So we had half of a life. Now we need another half. What do we talk about next episode? Well, Jeffrey, it's almost that time of year again. That middle-of-the-year, summerish kind of period where we take one topic and really drill down on it for three episodes, four episodes, 20 episodes, however many it takes to get it right. And it's about time for us to do that again. It's about time for us to look at another great seminal period in video game history that involves a little more in-depth coverage. What we've decided to do this time in terms of that coverage is look at the Sega versus Nintendo struggle across 8-bit and 16-bit primarily platforms. This is a story that has been told a lot of different times by a lot of different people. I don't know that we have as much new information to impart into this story as we did on, say, some of our Atari episodes, but I think we can synthesize things in a way that haven't been synthesized before and bring up a few new big points in there. And unlike those previous three-part extravaganzas, we are going to record this one live for you, the viewers. Literally the viewers, because we're going to do something completely insane, which is we're going to record the whole thing live for you on video to YouTube for your entertainment. And what this means is we'll set this up on June 3rd, 2018. That is a Sunday at around 12.30 U.S. Central Time. That's GMT minus 5. We do all that silly daylight saving time stuff. But yes, we will record this live. I'll be monitoring the chat. We'll have cameras on each of us, probably some lights, sound, entertainment, and insanity because usually when we record these things, it takes about five to six hours of recording the entire thing and then we just find logical points in order to break it up. Right. And just to clarify a couple of points on that, this is more for people who are curious how the sausage gets made, so to speak. People that want to pop in and out and see how we actually do this thing and see how much we actually stutter when we're doing this in person. We stutter a lot. While we do hope to interact some with our audience during this, it won't necessarily be the same as a Twitch feed of someone streaming a game where they're in constant communication with the audience. Jeff will be monitoring chat, but if we're stopping all the time, 
we won't get anything recorded, and obviously the noise of that would also be a problem. So we hope to have some interaction, but maybe less than you might be accustomed to if you watch streamers on Twitch. And there will still be a polished, edited episode at the end of all this. The thing we do live will not be the thing that goes up on Podbean. It'll still be edited and polished the same way all our episodes are. But if anyone's curious just exactly who this Alex and Jeffrey person, people, thingies are, and what exactly they're doing and where, then might want to tune in for a little bit and see a little of the process. And all the insanity thereof. But I think before we get involved in that epic struggle between Nintendo and Sega that kind of takes place starting in uh, really about 1986, which is when Sega releases their system in the West, I think it's good as a kind of grounding in where that starts to go back and look at the very beginnings of the Japanese console industry. This part of it is not part of the big three-episode extravaganza because there really isn't in the very early days this Nintendo-Sega conflict. But it's kind of important to see how this market was shaped and how you had these different entities that were kind of trying to push into this new space. And then finally, at the end of it, you kind of get Nintendo coming in and kind of crushing all of these other companies that were kind of trying to get something started there. And that kind of sets the stage for the great rivalry. So early history of the Japanese console industry. All right. We'll cover that one next time, followed by the long edits. (laughs) Next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 